Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. And God, we are already thinking about next Sunday where we overwhelmingly rejoice in your resurrection. Oh, what a glorious day we celebrate on Easter. And God, as we lead up to it, Lord, help our eyes to be fixed on that, to be looking for your return. And God, we do pray for Fudd right now. We thank you for his leadership, his pastoring of us, his care for us. Uh, We pray for him and pray for his family, that you would bring healing to them. And um, God, that we as a a family just love and encourage him. And God, as we we, we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would um, speak to our hearts, uh, deepen our desires and affections for Jesus, and pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would empower me. Uh, Father, I'm clinging to your words, John 15, that apart from you, I can do nothing. So God, my words are nothing, but I pray that as Christ opened the eyes of the apostles in Luke 24, that they would see him in the scriptures, that Holy Spirit, you would do that this morning for my eyes and everyone here, that we would see Jesus more clearly and that you would be exalted. So Father, we we ask this in your name for your glory. Amen. Um, this morning is a little bit different for me. Uh, Fudd and I have a, a, a similar uh, approach to when it when it comes to, to preaching. Typically, uh, um, by both conviction and training, we both will take a passage, as you well know, and start in the beginning and just kind of plod through that thing and get to the end and, and, and pray that God would bring things out. This morning, for me, um, it's a little different approach. I don't have just a real small passage that we'll be just working through verse by verse. Um, but we're going to we're going to kind of come at things less on a street view and more of a 30,000 foot view today. And here's what I mean. Um, we as people love stories. That's just part of, I think, how God has wired us because of the way God relates to us through word and spoken um, his word. And he's just part of who we are. And people love stories. And if you doubt that. Um, just look at the success of movies like the Twilight series or the Hunger Games or the books or these best-selling authors. People love story, even fictional stories, things that, that aren't real, about people who don't exist, about things that can't happen. We love stories. We love hearing them. We like seeing the plot twist. We, we get sucked into these stories. Um, and we, we want to see how they, they, they work out. And when they work out well, we're happy. When they work out sad, my wife reads books that makes her cry sometimes. And I don't know why, but she likes them. And it's just all this, this story draws us in. But it's not just a fictional story. Because think about those times. And I don't know about for you, but for me, some of my favorite times is sitting around with a group of people just sharing stories about life. Whether it's about your kids or whether it's about growing up or whether it's an experience you had on a mission trip or or whatever. I mean, we just got back from Puerto Rico not too long ago and people wanted to hear what happened. 
And they had seen pictures. Well, tell me about that. It's not enough just to see the picture. They want to know the story that goes on. And we love this. And I think this is part of how God has wired us as human beings made in his image is that he would relate to us and we would love to hear the way that he relates to us. I think it's a reflection of that. Well, unfortunately, oftentimes when we look at the Bible, we don't look at the Bible as a story. We look at the Bible as a bunch of stories. And there's a big difference there. Because if the Bible is one story, it's got an overarching theme and point and purpose for it all to go in one direction. But most of the time, if we're honest, the way that we approach the scripture is a collection of stories. And they're all kind of connected because God's in there somewhere. But it's a group of things that just kind of randomly teach us about God, about people we've never heard of with names that are hard to pronounce. And there's no way that Genesis really has a bearing on Ephesians or that Malachi really has anything to do with third John. You see, they all just kind of go together and we just kind of look. So, OK, well, these are kind of alike and these are kind of alike and these. are. So you get through these so you can get to these. And then there's good stories that we can teach our kids about being moral and upright and having virtue and loving God. But there's no real way that they're all connected. And we may not say that, but it's kind of the way that we approach it. But what I would submit to you this morning is that the Bible is a story. One singular story. Not about a bunch of random people, but about God. And we don't have to make that fit. Um, It just is. And so what I hope to do this morning is that we will spend some time, most importantly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, talking about this story. But I really want to do is I want to elevate us and look at it from the big picture. We have a, a book in our house that we use with our kids. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And we love it. The, the, sub, the little subline is like every story whispers his name. And in the, on, the, on the first reading that you have, this is, this is what the author writes. And I love this. The Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. You see, I think it's really important for us as people who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and have been given a commission to the world to declare the greatness of Jesus. I think it's important for us to understand the Bible, not as a collection of good things, but as God's overarching story of his love for the world and how we fit into that. And there's really three reasons. One. The primary reason, uh, this is a a quote, the primary reason we should learn the story is to know the author who's revealed himself throughout history with absolute intent. 
Because you see, what you find is that as you're reading the story, you learn about the author. I read a story one time, uh, I heard a, a pastor named Tim Keller telling a story one time about a British author who wrote these spy uh, mystery novels, and everybody loved them. Everybody loved the uh, the guy. He was the main character, but he had this this kind of dark past, and he and he they, he couldn't work through. And all of a sudden, there was this female figure that was introduced into the books, and as she helped him kind of discover himself and move out of this darkness, and what happened was, as people started examining the figure, they realized she exactly represented the person who was writing the books. She wrote herself into the book to bring salvation to the character. And what a picture of what God has done. Because God didn't just tell us a story. This is real life story that happened. And God didn't sit back and watch it and just tell us what happened. God wrote himself into the story and brings it all out together. So the primary reason we learn is to know the author. But the second thing is this. When we don't understand the Bible this way, we're constantly coming in in the middle of the story. Now, I told this in the first service, and my wife was here, so I don't feel bad saying it again. But when we're at home watching TV, my wife uh, detests commercials. Okay? So we're watching the show. I see a couple of heads nodding in, in, in agreement here. And so we're watching a show, and we're, you know, 30 minutes into an hour-long show, and a commercial comes on. So as soon as the commercial comes on, she grabs the remote control, and we're flipping. Okay? Now, it never fails. We end up on something we have not seen 30 minutes of. And they're in the middle of a police interrogation or something. And they're asking, what happened to this person? And the first thing you're like is, who are they talking about? What's going on? How does this fit? Is it a bank robbery? Is it a murder? Is, is somebody, and you don't know what's going on. You have no clue. And so you can pick up there and know what's going on in the scene, but you have no idea how that fits into everything else. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's what happens with us. And so when we come to the story of David and Goliath, we think that it's about us learning how to face our giants. It's not what David and Goliath is about. We're not David. We're the Israelites. We're scared to death. We've got something looming over us so large that we can't destroy. We need somebody to come in and rescue us from the death that's overhanging every single one of us. And that's Christ. But if we don't know the big picture, we come in and we try to insert ourselves into the story and we do it in the wrong place. So when we look at Jonah, we stop at Jonah being about us needing to go tell people about Jesus. But what we realize is that Jonah is not about us so much going and tell people about Jesus as it is the prophet who came, who was more than a prophet, who didn't run away from us in our rebellion because we were so ugly and hatred and vile. Instead of running away from us, he ran towards us. And yeah, he spent three days not in the belly of a great fish, but in the belly of the earth because he died in our place for our sin. You see, David and Goliath is about Jesus. Jonah is about Jesus. Ephesians is about Jesus. Revelation is about Jesus. It all hinges on Christ. And it's meant to show us our great need for him and how he is so great and so wonderful that one story isn't enough to tell us about everything he's going to do for us. It takes all of scripture to begin to scratch the surface. And so it's all going there. And if we don't understand that, we come in the middle and we just start making stuff up. 
So we've got to get there so that we know how all of this all fits in together. And then the very last thing that we have to understand, and this is where it gets personal, is because we're not reading a story just as somebody looking and thinking, wow, that was crazy for those people. Because what we find is that as we read the story, we're part of it. What's happened there is also real and true in our life. And how God intervened there is how God intervenes in our life now. So it's really important that we understand this. So in the Bible, there's, it follows the same thing with every story. You've got a setting where it all happens, where it takes place. You've got the conflict. This is where the, the interesting part comes in. This is where what happens, what's going on. You know, I, I, I said earlier, um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Um, yeah, a couple of you have. Some of you haven't. Don't waste your time. I mean, I love it. I mean, I think it's I think it's so dumb that it's funny. I just I. But when you watch it for the first time, it is a movie without a plot. I mean, it is a random series of events with this extremely awkward guy. And it's just you keep watching it and you keep waiting. It's like, OK, so the movie's about him. No. Well, all right. So his interaction with her. No. And by the time you get to the end of it, you're like, what was that about? I mean, I know he likes tater tots, but what in the world? I don't there's no point to it. And you're left going. That's not a good story because there's nothing to it. But what we find is that these things that are in a good story, the, the setting, the conflict, the climax, is there any hope? Will this be resolved? And then the resolution, all of that is there in Scripture, and it's not even forced. As we start looking at it, we see it. So this morning, what I want to do, Lord willing, is I want us to, to, to begin looking at that first couple parts of the story. Because you see, the climax, the the... The glorious part of the story we celebrate next week. And for a lot of us, we're going to spend this week really, we're going to be thinking about Easter. We're going to be thinking about getting ready. And so oftentimes what we do, and I think rightfully so, is we spend the time looking at the last week in the life of Christ. And we, we concentrate on that. And those, those are good. Those are great. That's, it's a wonderful thing to do. But this morning, what I would like for us to do is not look so much at the last week of Christ's life. But I want to start at the very beginning. And I want us to get at the big picture of what Easter is all about. So we're going to do that starting in Genesis. Now, if you don't have a Bible and you need one under, underneath the seat in front of you, there is a Bible. This will be one of the easiest times ever. If you don't know where anything is in the Bible, this is really good. Okay, let me tell you. First book of the Bible. First chapter. First verse. Okay, just like turn a couple pages in and you're there. Okay, easy to find. Genesis 1 1. We're going to start there. And we're going to we're going to start with this backdrop. What's going on now? There's there's not going to be any notes or anything on the screen. I apologize. It was a little bit last minute. So if you're taking notes, you got something I didn't get. We'll get you the podcast or something. Genesis 1 1. 
we're going to read one verse to start out with. Now, let me let me say before I do this, um, like I said earlier, this is not typically where we would just have a, a passage. We'd read it and then work through it. We're going to be in Genesis one, two and three for a long while this morning. And then we are going to uh, NASCAR through the rest of the Old Testament and get to Jesus. OK, um, and so I told the first service, our text this morning is Genesis one, one through Malachi four, six, uh, which is about, you know, this much of the Bible. So uh, we're going to do this kind of quickly. But Genesis 1-1, here's what we got to do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for a lot of Christians, Genesis 1-1 has one point. I don't believe in evolution. God made it. He said it. I believe it. Let's get on to the rest of the book. Okay. That's what, that's, what, that's what a lot of Christians have with Genesis 1, and that's it. But can I tell you, let's put on the brakes just a second. There's something much greater here for us. In fact, the main character of the whole thing is introduced in Genesis 1.1. The main character of the entire Bible is God. And in Genesis 1-1, we are told some pretty powerful things about him. First off, notice what it says. It says, in the beginning. In the beginning, when everything started, when time began, when history is at its very beginning point, God is the one who set it into motion. You see, when everything started, God was already there. He was the only one there. He was already there. So let your brain hurt for a little bit and try to think about eternally. God was eternally there, always has been, always existed, never needed anything, didn't need the world, didn't have to have it, wasn't incomplete without it. It wasn't like God was forever going, I've got to create a world. I need people to love. God had everything. He was there, complete, All of his own accord decided he was going to do this thing. We are finite beings that have a beginning and an end. Not so with God. So when it says in the beginning, he's not just talking about the starting point. He's giving you a little bit about God there. But not only is God eternal, God is creator. Now that is that is huge. We think about, oh, yeah, God made stuff. God made granite and gold and diamonds and grass. God came up with clouds. God made fish. God made trees. God made the animals that scientists haven't yet classified or discovered. God put together atomic forces, physics, galaxies that we can't even begin to comprehend the vastness of. From the smallest little molecule to the grandest thing we can imagine. God created it all. The Hebrew word there for created literally means something from nothing. It wasn't like he had a bunch of stuff and decided like a mound of Play-Doh. He was going to put it together and form it. 
God spoke and it happened, which is the third thing we really learn about God is his power in all of this. Nothing forced God to do this. Nothing showed God how to do this. Nothing guided him as he did this. His power, he spoke words and things came into being. Galaxies happened when he spoke. That's huge. And so when you put all of this together, the fourth thing that comes out of that is it's his. Every bit of it. Not just the stuff. It's not just that he owns it. It is his. When there's something that's yours, it's yours to do with however you feel like. You can treat it how you want. You can do what you want. You know, somebody looks at your car and if it looks like junk, well, it doesn't matter. It's yours. You can throw trash in the floorboard if you want to. Why? It's yours. And so God has this world to do with as he sees fit. And that's not a bad thing. Because as we read the story, we find out he's not arbitrary. He's not mean. He's not vindictive. He's good. And he's wonderful. And he's wise. And he's strong. And he's valiant. And he is just. And he is good. That is the king who holds the world in his hands. And so all of this is God. And then you start looking at creation. And we won't read all of Genesis 1-1, but I want you to start picturing in your mind just the amazingness of this. God is sitting here and he's speaking and he says, let there be light. And there had never been light before. And God creates light. And there's light and there's dark. And he said, oh, this is good. And now I'm going to take, I'm going to separate the sky from the seas. And there's going to be an expanse in between. Oh man, this is good. Yeah. And the dry land is going to come up and there's going to be plants that come up of every kind of plant imaginable. You can think of comes up out of the ground and God speaks and there it is. And it's like, oh, this is good. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to make, I'm going to make the light and a sun and a moon. And there's going to be seasons. And God sets in time the way that the sun would shine during the day and the moon would come out at night. And then you would be able to tell the seasons by the fact that the moon would go from full and it would wax and it would wane and it would go to nothing and it would come back to full. And he says, there's going to be seasons. There's going to be times. You're going to be able to tell directions by looking at stars. All of this is in God's plan and design and all of it. He says, oh yeah, this is good. This is good. And then he fills the water teeming with life so much that it blows our mind. when We begin thinking about it. And that's just in the water. Then he fills the air full of birds. And he says, oh, this is good. And then he makes every living being on the ground that we can think of. And he says, this is good. And he's made this massive expanse of the Himalayas and the Andes and the Marianas Trench and the oceans and Sequoia Redwoods. And the smallest little grasses, the little bitty insects and the graceful eagles that fly all over. He's made all of this and it is just beautiful and amazing and it is stunning and it is the most creative thing you can ever imagine. And then he says, the pinnacle of my creation is going to reflect me. You see, all of creation declares the glory of God, reflects his handiwork, shows his creativity, but it does not reflect God the way that people do. And so what does he say in Genesis 127? 126, then God said, let us make man in our own image 
after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. Man, I wish I had more time to go through all that. But the, the beauty of this passage is now we get to people. Up until this point, people are not there. Now, people are on the earth, and there's some great things we find out about people. They're made in God's image. We've already talked about that. But notice this, and this is key, because you've got to get this for where we're going this morning. God blesses them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. With that, that whole language there, sometimes we think about, yeah, we're people, we have dominion. Hear the language here. God has created this glorious, wonderful earth, and he gives it to people. This is the sign of God's goodness. He gives it to them. It is yours Fill it, subdue it, multiply, be over it. I bless you. I am giving you this glorious world to live in. And it is a good thing. And what you find then when you read in Genesis 2, after God makes woman, because man looks at all the animals, man, these are great, but none of them look like me. And God says, for the first time, something's not good that Adam would be alone. So he makes woman. Adam was very happy about that. Now he has woman. Things are great. God says, this is, this is very good. And what you find is that at that point in time, there is nothing but harmony. Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing in between them. Everything was pure. Their relationship was perfect. The relationship between people and creation was wonderful. You ever tried to catch a bird? They can't. They could do that. We can't do that. And God would come down in the coolness of the evening and walk with them. It is the picture perfect utopia. And God, the main character, is at the center of it all. It's revolving around him. Everything is working perfectly. But here's the reality. We can look in this room and see that that's not the way that it is now. That's not the way that it is. So if this is true and this is real and that's the way that it was, the question now is why is it not that way now? You see, because this lasts for two chapters of the Bible. But you've got to understand, the Bible is the Bible's thick. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm going to take out the table of contents. It's two pages. It's two pages and the rest of the Bible, the other thousands of pages, they're in here. What is going on? Why is it not working? And that's when we get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, something, somebody else comes on the scene. There's another player that comes in. You see, God had made these people, given them this earth. And it says even there's a special place that he made for them, this garden. And it says in Genesis 2, the Lord commanded the man, you may surely eat of every good, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, oftentimes we miss the goodness of God in this command. Because we look at commands, because we're sinful, we look at commands not as God's goodness. But here's the reality. 
There is no death in the world whatsoever. The thing that will bring death in the world will be Adam and Eve eating of this tree. So in God's goodness, he looks at them and he says, I've given you everything that you need. If you eat of this, you will die. That is goodness. Because God is letting them know this will cause death in your life. Do not go near it. Don't eat of it. And so the man and the woman are living perfect in harmony with each other, with God, with all of creation. And in walks the third character, the serpent. Now, when we read in Genesis 3, the beginning of the story, he just looks like an ordinary snake. Besides the fact that he can talk. Um, But as we continue reading the rest of the story, we find that he's not an ordinary snake. He's a created being, beautiful, who at one point thought he could take God's throne. And God cast him down. And now, there's nothing but hatred for God. So he steps onto the scene. God had given the command to Adam. Adam's off in la-la land somewhere over here, standing next to his wife, while a talking snake comes up and begins having a conversation with him. Gentlemen, if you ever see a talking snake, don't be amazed, crush it. Step on it. You know, whatever you got to do. Don't let a talking snake talk to your wife. Just a point of application. But notice what he says. We're going to read. Let's read verse chapter three, starting in verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice what he does. He comes in, already subverting everything that God has done. Hey, did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree? Well, there's that one tree we can't eat of. If we eat of it, we're going to die. You are not going to die. At this point, he's now said, God is a liar. He has fed you, sold you a bill of goods. And he is holding back from you. So not only is God a liar, he's not good. Because what he has done is he's told you you can't eat this. He's told you that if you do it, you're going to die. You're not going to die. And what he's doing is he is holding out on you. Because when you get this, when you get this, God is no longer the one who gets to tell you what's right and wrong. You get to choose what's right and wrong. It's up to you. You're not under his boot anymore. You get to decide. Then you get to eat whatever you want, go wherever you want to go. And the reality is here is this lie is the same lie we live with today. I told the first service, I I met a girl this week on campus. Um, This is one of the reasons I love doing, working on college campus. I met a girl and she was, uh, uh, talked to her for a few minutes and she said she is half Wiccan, half Catholic. And I was like, seriously? How does that work? 
And so I just really started asking her questions because I was like, how could you be half weak and half Catholic? Like, first off, what? Um, and so we started talking, but we know what it boiled down to. When I asked the right questions, she ultimately told me, I take the things from Catholicism that I like, and I take the things from Wicca that I like, and I just put them together. I choose what is right and what is wrong. There's no outside standard. It's me. I'm the decider of what's good and evil. And see, that's what the tree of knowledge and good and evil is about. It's not that you'll know what's right and wrong. Adam and Eve knew that it was wrong to disobey God. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is that they would be the one who would be able to say, this is good and that's bad. That's what the tree is all about. And what we find is that Adam and Eve, both culpable, both. God gave the command to Adam. Adam should have crushed the snake. He sat there, listened to the whole thing. Eve was tempted. They both believed the lie. They both ate the apple. Not the apple, the fruit. That's a cultural invention. It was a fruit. What an apple tree. Come on. Seriously? We'd still have it? No. Anyway, we're not even going to go there right now. They both ate the fruit. And at that point in time, everything shattered. Everything shattered. And we know it because of how they reacted. So look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was delight for the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately, the harmony with each other is completely broken. You can see me. I can see you. There's things about me that you shouldn't see. We're not in unity. So they have to hide from each other. God comes down. Where are you? They're hiding from God. Nothing works the way that it's supposed to be. This glorious picture of chapter 1 and 2 has now been shattered And it goes on from there. I want to read a a quote to you. Tim Keller writes this. Disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging, and death itself are as much the result of sin as are oppression, war, crime, and violence. We have lost God's shalom, which is his peace. Physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, and culturally. Romans eight nineteen says, For creation waits with eager longing the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who suffered the result of this fall. All of creation itself suffered the result of the fall. And we, as their descendants, have the same virus coursing through our veins. And it's there. And we're broken. That's the hard part of the story. Now, let me share something with you. I was teaching on this earlier this semester to our students over on campus. And I did it in a four-part series. And one of my sermons ended right there. I was like, let's pray. It's just like, 
what? I literally had a guy in the back go, oh, come on, tell us the rest. It was the best night. I was like, come back next week. I'll share it with you. But when you're left right there, you understand the weight of it all. It's huge. Everything has just fallen down and you're only in chapter three. But here is the good news. Because notice what happens in chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I think I just got an email. I didn't know I was on Wi-Fi. God came down. Notice this. They have rebelled. They have turned away from God. They have rejected him. They've done exactly what he told them not to do. They have, in essence, with the serpent, called God a liar. They believe that he's not good. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to be equal to him. They wanted to step into his place. This is what they've done. God knows this. He's not out getting a cup of coffee, turned around and go, whoa, who let the snake in? He didn't do that. He knows what's going on the whole time and he comes for them. This is good news because he doesn't come down and say, what did you do, you bunch of punks and start beating them up or destroy them or cast them, you know, completely off the earth to blow them to smithereens. He doesn't do that, which he could have done. He's just, he's good, he's holy. He had every right in the world. Remember, he's the king of the universe. This is his to do what he says. And unruly, ungrateful subjects who pose a rebellion deserve death, but he doesn't give it to them. He tells them there's a curse because of your sin. And he goes to the woman and he tells the woman, you know, part of life was that your blessing was I was giving you this earth and you were to multiply. And the blessing is now turned into a curse because you're going to have children. But the pain is going to be absolutely horrible. And man and woman, your relationships that were supposed to be so perfect and to reflect me and my relationship with the church. Well, now there's going to be fighting in those relationships. And man, the garden that you were given to just have to worship and obey and know me. Now you will still work it. But your work won't be worship. It'll be pain and toil. And we all feel the effect of that. And you sense the weight of what's going on. But right before he does that, God does something amazing. I want you to read Genesis 3, 14 and 15 with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and you should, on dust you shall eat and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 sets us on a path for the rest of the Bible. Because here's what's important. In this, the ESV translates offspring. It's the Hebrew word seed. This word seed is a constant that continues to come up in the rest of Scripture. And so one author put it this way. The Bible is one long and detailed answer 
to one short and crucial question. Who is that seed who was promised to come? Because there's a seed of woman who will crush the very picture of death itself. And so now, as we're reading and we're looking at the rest of the Bible, we understand that we've all got this problem and we're looking for the seed. So then Adam and Eve have a son, have two sons, Cain and Abel. Oh, maybe Abel's going to be the one. God accepted his sacrifice, but what happens? Cain kills him. So it's not him. And so you're, you're left reading the Bible. And then as you read those little genealogies, the ones that never made sense, think about the fact now that it tells you that this person was born, they had sons and daughters, and then they died. Because you're set now looking for the seed until you get to Noah, who interrupts all of that. And now all of a sudden, Noah is a righteous man in his generation. And everybody else mocked him. And God comes down, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save your family. And you're like... Nobody else on earth is good. Everybody else is wicked. Noah and his family. Is Noah the one that we're supposed to be looking for? And Noah is faithful. He like takes forever to build a boat because it's a big boat. And he's like never, nobody's ever seen a boat before. And he's figuring this stuff out as God shows him. And he's doing it. All the animals come and everybody's ready. And everything's destroyed. All the evil people are wiped out on the earth. And you think, okay, all the evil people are gone. Now things are going to be perfect. And Noah gets off the boat. And the first thing he does, grows a vineyard, gets drunk. And all of a sudden, he's in the same state as everybody else. And you're like, well, all right, so it's not Noah. And what's happening is then the, it picks right up right there. Noah was so many years old, had sons and daughters, then he died. And it just shows you Noah, though this man happened this very thing, he's not the one. So you keep looking and you keep tracking. And all these things start happening. And all of a sudden, you come across Abraham. Abraham, this guy doesn't even know God's worshiping the sun over here somewhere. God says, hey, Abraham. I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to make your name great. Going to give you a bunch of land. Let's go. Abraham says, sweet. Packs up everything and goes with God. And you're like, okay, Abraham, here's the guy. This is the one we're looking for. I mean, we're like 15, you know, 12 chapters in now. So surely by now we've got to have the one who's the seed. And God makes this promise. But when he makes the promise to Abraham, he doesn't make it to Abraham. He makes it to his seed. And so now you're saying, okay, there's that seed again. It's not Abraham. Who's Abraham's son? Abraham doesn't have any sons. He's old. He's like a hundred, like old. He's not going to have sons. His wife is almost as old. All right. It's like miracle baby. Not going to happen. So he tries to have it through this other lady, make it happen himself. And God's like, uh, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. You're going to do it my way. Your wife, Sarah, who's over 90, is going to have a kid. They both laugh. So then they name him laughter because they laughed at God. But God did what he's supposed to do. You think Isaac's the one. Then what does God do? God tells Abraham to take Isaac up on a mountain and kill him. And you're like, no. You're promised a seed and now you want him to kill him? Abraham's thinking the same thing. He goes up on the seed. He's like, what's going on? God will provide. I trust God. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham believed God could raise him from the dead because he knew the promise was coming through Isaac. And so that Isaac comes up there and after Abraham almost kills him, God provides the ram. And then God makes a promise again that through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. We're looking for Isaac and it's not Isaac. Then you come to Jacob. And if you ever read about Jacob, you're like, God, please don't let the seed be Jacob. This guy's like a deceiver from the beginning. All right, so it's not Jacob. You're looking, there, you're looking at Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And you're like, oh, man, which one is it? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You know, you're like, okay, the firstborn. It's got to be the firstborn. It's not the firstborn. It's not the second one. Then Joseph rises up, the youngest, okay? Well, not almost the youngest. Um, 
He's there. He's got this coat. He goes down to Egypt. He's the king. You're like, oh, surely it has got to be Joseph. Joseph is the one that we're supposed to be looking for. I mean, like Joseph does everything right. But then Jacob, right as he's about to die in Genesis 49, he's pronouncing these blessings upon his sons. And he gets to the fourth one named Judah. Judah is like not a good guy. Okay, he slept with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute, got her pregnant and then tried to hide it. Okay. So you're looking at Judah and you're like, this guy, uh-uh, no. And the promise is that the scepter will not depart from between Judah's feet. He lays down like a lion and like a lion who will arouse him. And you see this verse and you're like, oh my goodness, it's Judah. But it's not Judah. So it's got to be one of Judah's descendants. And so then you're going along, you're tracking. And then the people go down to Israel and it's Moses. You're like, okay, maybe it's Moses. You know, he's got the whole law, parting the Red Sea, ten plagues, all this kind of stuff. Moses has got to be the guy. And Moses gives the law. And the law of God goes there and it shows us the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. And also what it does is show every single one of us what lawbreakers we are. And the more we try to keep it, the more it pushes us down. And Moses, the one who's supposed to be exercised faith in God we think is going to be him Moses says no there's going to be a prophet like me from among your brothers who's going to be raised up look for him because he's going to give you words Moses is not faithful doesn't go to the promised land now we've got the law showing us how sinful we are we try to keep it Moses shows us that we can't keep it and so we're looking but now we're looking for this prophet who's to come and then Joshua steps up and you're like okay Joshua he's leading the people into the promised land his name means salvation God's going to do it through Joshua they're like armies they're like killing people and, you know, taking over the land and the promise seems to be coming true. This promise God made to Abraham way back 400 years ago. They're going to get the land. They're going in there. And when Joshua comes time to die, there's a little thing put at the end of Joshua that's really important to us that says that they did not remove all the nations that God told them to do. And now you're left saying, Joshua didn't do it. He didn't finish it. He can't be the one that we're looking for. So now we're looking, you get to the time of Judges. All right, if you ever read Judges, there's something you're going to find out. Them people's bad, okay? We're bad too, so like we're not looking down on them. But they're bad. They did whatever they wanted to do. They didn't care about the law. They didn't care anything about God. Everything was bad. God would send people to punish them. they cry out to God. God would send somebody to redeem them, and they just go right back to it. It's like over and over and over and over again. You're like, please reveal the seed because he's not in here anywhere. And all of a sudden, Saul steps onto the king scene. He's a king. The people want a king. God gives them a king. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's tall. He looks like a king. He talks like a king. Everybody thinks he's going to be a great king. You think Saul is the one. You're looking at him. Surely Saul is the one. But then what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He does the things that he's not supposed to do. He has blatant disregard for God's law. And Samuel is sad. And God is sad. And what's going on? And then all of a sudden there's this shepherd boy who can kill bears with a slingshot. Who can take down giants with a slingshot. And you're like, this is the guy. And he comes and he waits his time and he's faithful to God and everything's good. Saul finally dies. He becomes king. And as you're reading and you're reading this in context, you're looking you're like, this is the guy. And the very last thing, he's made this kingdom. Everything's good. God's blessing him. He stayed faithful to God. And then all of a sudden he wants to make God a house. I want to make a temple. And you're like, yeah, David, make a temple. That's it. That's what you need to do. And God goes, uh-uh, boy. This ain't about you. I didn't tell you to make me a house. But let me tell you something. Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to make you a house. 
And one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. And so then you're like, okay, which one of the descendants? Because unfortunately, David had a few wives. Okay. Not quite the faithful thing he's supposed to do, but he had lots of wives, had several sons. Solomon is on the throne. Solomon asked for wisdom. You look at Solomon. Solomon's the guy we're supposed to be looking for. He's the wisest person who's ever lived. He, you know, like the whole split the baby in half thing. And, you know, it was just it's like, Solomon's the guy. And then he gets 700 wives. You're like, not him, not Solomon. And then after Solomon, it goes downhill from there. And there are peaks and valleys where you see people coming up and they do good and they do bad and you're wondering what's going on. And all of the prophets during this time, all these prophets are prophesying during this time and they're constantly calling the people back to God. And every now and then they're giving us glimmers of hope of this one who is to come. And so we see that at the close of the Old Testament canon in the book of Second Chronicles, there's a cry for the one who is coming. Let him go up. And so the entire Old Testament Let's us know that we can't fix ourselves. That mess that happened in chapter three has so ingrained itself in creation and people that we can't do anything about it. And we are in desperate need of somebody to come and fix this. And in on the steam walks a man. In fact, he doesn't walk on. He's born. Seed of a woman. Somebody who, when tempted, obeys fully and completely. Somebody who doesn't earn death by his rebellion, yet one who chooses death because of his disobedience. You see, Jesus was the the seed of woman. Jesus fully obeyed and attempted and resisted temptation. Jesus willingly died. But the consequences of sin is death, not perfect obedience. Why did he die? Well, Jesus substituted himself. You see, in the midst of looking for the seed, people began looking for a king. And they forgot that Isaiah 53 tells us he's a suffering servant. Who gave himself for our sins. You see our greatest need isn't political freedom. Our greatest need isn't to be healed from diseases. Our greatest need isn't to have food for our stomachs. Our greatest need is to be reconciled. To a good and holy God. Who didn't kick us to the curb when he very well could have. You see the problem was. We had offended an infinitely good and holy God. The size of the offense demanded a sacrifice that was of equal size. And one person can't satisfy that. So it's got to be a God-sized sacrifice. But the reality is, God's not the one who offended. It was man. So man has to pay the price, but man can't pay the price because it's a God-sized price. How does that work? God stepped into time, wrote himself into the story because all of that was getting us ready for him to come and take on our flesh. And instead of rejecting us, he came 
and rescued us. So he gave himself for us. Took the penalty and the wrath that we deserved on the cross. But get this, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. That is great, great news. But if he just gave himself for us and died... We are left wondering if the curse has completely been undone. Because remember, the day you eat of it, you will die. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. There is something worse than physical death. And that is being a living corpse that has no relation to God whatsoever. Seeking satisfaction in things that can't satisfy. Fulfillment in things that, that can't fulfill. And centering life around ourselves when it was meant to be centered on Christ. There's nothing that comes in the place of that. So it's, it is vitally important that Jesus died. But if he was not raised from the dead, we don't know if the curse has been lifted or not. But Jesus was raised from the dead. The very effect of the curse he took on himself and conquered it. We sing a song that uh, one of the lines is trampling over death by death. And that's what he did. And the resurrection shows that the very thing we fear the most has been conquered by Christ. And why is that important? Well, one of the reasons that's important is because everybody in the New Old Testament was looking for the one who is coming. Now, unfortunately, we often look back and we look on the one who came. But the reality is we are looking for the one who is coming. Because he has come and paid the price for sin and opened the door that we can be reconciled to God. But history is not over. The story is not over. You see, we are now part of that story. Whether we are following Christ and have been reconciled and are now with him, sharing the story, inviting people to find their place in it and understand what God has done for them. Or whether you're on the outside and for this morning, for the very first time hearing that this is the story of your life and Christ has come for you. And also because right now you turn on the TV, you go on the Internet and there's pain. And there's suffering and there's disease and there's children who go to bed hungry and there are mothers who cry because their sons have been shot and there's racism and there's slavery and there's hurt and there's trouble. And we know that when Christ returns, he will make all things new. He will bring it into completion. And so we're not just looking back at the one who came. Like all of history, we are looking for the one who is to come. And so next week, as we gather to talk about the resurrection, to celebrate the conquering of death by Christ, let's not just think about one glorious Sunday morning. Let us understand that at the crux of history, it's the story of our God who loved us and came in the midst of the story to save us. You see, it's all about him. It's all about him, just as our very lives should be. So what do we do with this?
Well, if you've been redeemed by Christ, this is the kind of thing that just undergirds and strengthens your foundation as you walk into a dying and hurting world. This is a thing that bolsters your worship when it's hard to worship. This is the thing that keeps us focused when it's really, really hard because we understand the end of the story is coming. And it makes us cry out with the Apostle Paul, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But this is also for you an understanding that being part of the story is not the end. Because being part of the story is that God has written us in. And we have the glorious privilege of sharing this great and wonderful story with those who are around us. One of the things I've noticed in working with college students is that um, probably 20, 30 years ago, you could make some Bible references with people and they would kind of know what you're talking about. Nowadays, when you start talking about stuff in the Bible, it's just a blank stare. And, and that's, just, that's just the way that it is. No judgment about that. That's just the way that it is. So I think one of the things we're going to learn as a people is we want to share the gospel. It's not just you're a sinner who needs a Savior and Christ came. What are you talking about a sinner? From what? From where? And instead of starting at the cross, we're going to have to start at the garden and show how everything points to Christ. So maybe this week, hearing the story is going to bolster you and give you the ability to share with others and invite people to come celebrate the resurrection of Christ with us. And maybe, maybe tonight, maybe this morning, this, this is the first time you've heard this story and you've got questions. I, w- I would encourage you, if you came with somebody, ask them to explain to you more deeply the things of Christ, the mystery of Christ. And if you didn't come with somebody, uh, there's several of us who will be here um, around just hanging out after we're done. Uh, come find me. Come find somebody else. We'd love to talk with you and share with you. Let me pray with you, and then we're going to move into our time of, of worship. Father, you are great and glorious. And God, as we take this high and elevated view of the entirety of this complex and beautiful tapestry that you've woven together in human history. Lord, would you help us all the more to see how every little aspect is all part of this great and grand picture that you have so um, put together. And God, may it never fall on us lightly, but may it drive us deeply into your heart. That we would understand that there is such great meaning and purpose in it all. And that when it feels like we have no hope, Lord, we know that we have hope in you. So God, would you take this now and drive us deep into your heart. And may our worship be pure and sweet because of what Christ has done for us and in us. Lord, we love you and ask it in his name for his glory. Amen.